0: Let us pray. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good evening. It is an incredible honor for me to be here with you this evening. I've worshipped in this room before, but I've never stood up front, so I'm so thankful to Ed and to Nate and to the Mockingbird folks for inviting me. My parents are here. The pressure is on. Uh, I feel sure that that's how the reformers would want me to feel before talking about grace, the intense pressure to perform well. But don't worry, I plan to rise to the occasion. Um, you can take this to the bank. You're getting my best tonight. I had this whole opening joke about how the sound guy messed up and I was supposed to enter to Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf. But see I sort of thought that was a C plus joke, right? So I you know what I did? I cut it. Cut it right out of the talk. You're not gonna hear that joke. No C plus jokes for you tonight. Only A plus material. So as Ethan said I'm Nick Lannon. I'm associate rector at St. Francis in the Fields in Louisville, Kentucky. So I bring you greetings from either the U.S.'s northernmost southern city or southernmost northern city. It's a joy to be here uh, this weekend. I was actually raised just down the road in Falls Church, Virginia. But I want to get right to the issue at hand. We're here to celebrate grace. 500 years of it, although of course we've been gracious a lot longer than that. But we are celebrating this sort of reformational rediscovery of grace, and I've titled my little part of this celebration. No, actually, I don't work out good news for unwilling hearts. My plan tonight is to talk about this reformational rediscovery of the badness of the bad news and the goodness of the good news, and I'm going to do it by talking about Thomas Cranmer, the English reformer who wrote the prayer that I prayed at the beginning of this talk, and I'm going to Talk about his insight into the human heart, that's the bad news, and the possibility of good news despite it, using a couple of incidents from the life of the Apostle Peter as illustrations. And of course, I'll also share the explosive revelation that despite the Adonis you see before you, no, actually, I don't work out. So I do want to talk about that prayer that I prayed, but before we talk about a prayer, I want to get us situated in the Bible to give us a framework for what I want to talk about this evening. And to do that, I want to read to you, I'll reread to you the reading that we heard read in our little worship service from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 7, in which Samuel is sent by God to Jesse's house to anoint the next king. So this is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel. How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint For me, him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. He's inviting the sons, the potential candidates for the next king to come before him. And when they came, he looked upon Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And with these words, God completely reorients how we understand the world. All of a sudden, the things that we thought were important, the things that we thought were primal forces, like height, handsomeness, and strength, turn out to be secondary. And the things that we thought were secondary like your internal stuff, your heart, turn out to be all-important. And this, of course, is no coincidence. This is how God has always worked. Martin Luther, the, the spark who lit the theological powder keg that we're here celebrating this weekend, said that God was always at work subcontrario, under the opposite of where you would expect him to be. For instance, we naturally assume that tall people are the best— But apparently, short people might be okay, too. And I want to talk about one aspect of that opposite work here this evening. And to do so, I want to draw your attention back to that opening prayer that I prayed at the beginning of my talk a moment ago. Many of you, especially those of you who worship in Episcopal or Anglican churches, will know this prayer. Listen to it again. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners, Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise. That among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. This prayer written in the middle of the 16th century, about 500 years ago, describes humankind so perfectly that we still pray it today. Anglican churches all over the world say this prayer on the fifth Sunday in Lent, that season of the church year leading up to Easter, during which we prepare ourselves for the celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the reformer, Thomas Cranmer, in the writing of this prayer makes a profound statement about the interrelationship of the three main things that make up a person. The heart, the mind, and the will. And he's also giving us great insight into the bad news about human nature and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about this evening. Nothing important, just your heart, your mind, your will, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But before I get there, I want to begin with a story. I've always been a basketball player. I've always been skinny. Uh, well, until I graduated from college, I was skinny. Um, now I'm just sort of fluffy. Um, but I've never, been, I've never been strong. And that's, that's the key point that I'm trying to make here. I can, I can see you all writing that into your notes. Key point, Lannan never strong. But to play basketball and to play it well at a really high level, a certain level of strength is required that I never had. And during my junior year of college, when I was probably playing the best basketball of my life, I was six feet five inches tall and I weighed 185 pounds. I could actually take a deep breath, reach down, and grab my ribs and sort of pull them apart a little bit. (laughs) Of course, I was also eating two-foot-long subs every night for dinner, several nights a week. Uh, So perhaps my current fluffiness is well-deserved. But the point, and I promise you there's a point to all of this, is that everyone I ever played basketball with says, gosh, you're really good, but you should work out. Now, they would be saying that I could be better if I could get stronger. Imagine how much better you could be if you would just work out. Now, I hate working out. Hate, hate, hate. I hate the smell. I hate the clothes. I hate how it makes me feel. I hate that the whole wall is a mirror. I mean, that's just cruel, that the whole wall is a mirror. I hate everything about it, but I wanted to be a better basketball player. So every three months or so, I'd make this commitment to myself print out some workout regimen that I found online and start going to the gym. And the hope, I guess, was that after a while, I'd get to like it. You know, like an acquired taste. Fake it till you make it. And this is how we think things work. This is how we think life goes. This is how we imagine the relationship between the heart and the will and the mind works, right? Your mind makes a decision. In my case, I want to be better at basketball. That means working out, so I will work out. Then, once your mind makes a decision, you apply your will. The path to accomplishing the thing your mind chooses isn't always easy, so you've got to invoke your willpower. If you want to be a doctor, you've got to go to med school. A lawyer, law school. If you want to be strong, you've got to work out. You might hate it, But it's necessary, so you do it. And then, the idea is, your heart will come around eventually. One day you hope to find yourself loving the thing you used to hate. So in a nutshell, we act as if the way things work is this. What the mind chooses, the will works for, and the heart will catch up. That sounds normal, right? That's how we live every day of our lives. That's how we think it works. Except my heart never came around. Remember how I said I'd start working out every three months? That's because I'd quit every time after a week, every single time. My hatred was just too strong. It wasn't until several years later when I agreed to wake up at 5 a.m. to go to the YMCA gym with two guys I barely knew, that I had my breakthrough, my epiphany. Again, I did it for about a week before my eyes were opened, the scales fell off, and I realized how much I hated it. So I quit. For good. I have not lifted a weight since, not an ounce. Now I lift forkfuls of General So's chicken. So let's look at Thomas Cranmer's prayer again. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ our Lord. Cranmer, it seems, would argue with our what the mind chooses, the will works for, and the heart will catch up paradigm. He's asking for God to intervene, to turn the paradigm on its head, right? He says that God alone can bring into order our unruly wills. He asks that God give us grace to love what he commands and to desire what he promises isn't that fascinating we don't pray in Cranmer's words to understand or to know what God commands we pray to love it we ask God to reorient not our minds but our hearts and this is the reformation insight it's not our actions that need to be replaced it is our hearts. God, remember, doesn't see as we see. We look on the outside. He looks on the heart. And the reason that Cranmer has us pray this way for a new heart is that he knows that our paradigm is completely backwards. We imagine, remember, that our mind makes a decision, and then we apply our wills, and our heart will catch up. If we choose to obey God's commands, honor your father and mother, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, give away all you have, and work hard at it, the heart, the love, well, we hope that will come around later. But it doesn't. Just like with me and my workout, when you're working hard to follow commandments, love doesn't come. Exhaustion comes. Resentment comes. The realities of actual life reveal that our paradigm is backward, and we tell you how it really works. What the heart desires, the will chooses. And the mind justifies. The order is completely reversed. The mind is the last thing to get involved. What the heart desires, the will chooses. And the mind justifies. That's how Ashley Null, perhaps the world's foremost Cranmer expert, summed up Cranmer's anthropology, his theology of the human person, his description of how we human beings actually work. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Now, for the self-aware, this is obviously true, despite the fact that we continually act as if the other is. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and then the mind justifies. We're all well acquainted with this. I had to follow my heart, we say. The heart wants what the heart wants, we shrug, acknowledging our powerlessness. Anyone who's ever been attracted to somebody who wasn't their spouse knows that this is true. The heart desires, and the will chooses. Anyone who's ever promised themselves that they'll never again eat a whole sleeve of Oreos at midnight knows that this is true. The heart desires, and the will chooses. And then our minds. We're not lusting. We're just appreciating the beauty of God's creation. The mind justifies. We're not gluttonous. This is the last sleeve, and we swear we're not going to buy the 10-sleeve box the next time we're at Costco. The mind justifies. We do whatever it is that our heart desires and then try to figure out a good excuse for our behavior. I was in love. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. St. Paul provides the biblical evidence for this new paradigm by describing every human being perfectly in Romans 7. I do not understand what I do, he says. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Paul knows that his mind and his will are slaves to his heart. And when his heart isn't set on the right things, there's nothing he can do to stop himself. And we find ourselves right there with him. The heart wants what the heart wants, we say. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Lord tells Samuel that he's not choosing the eldest, strongest, most handsome son to be the king because he doesn't see as humans see. We look at the surface, says God, but he looks at the heart. And the crazy thing is we hear that as though it's good news. But that's backwards too. I would much rather have God looking at my outsides than at my heart. I can keep my surface pretty ship except for the General Sow's chicken. It's when you get into my heart, into my twisted desires, my selfish ambition, my deep-seated sinful nature, that things start getting really ugly. Jeremiah is completely right. My heart and yours are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And this is why Cranmer cries out to God for an intervention. Grant us grace to love what you command. Fix our hearts where true joys are to be found. After writing that section in Romans 7 about not doing the things he wants to do and being compelled to do the things he hates, Paul cries out for an intervention too. Knowing Jeremiah's words to be true, that our hearts are desperately sick, Paul calls out in agony, Who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue me from this body of death is the cry of every person who realizes that they are being led around by a deceitful, unwilling heart at the mercy of its sinful desires. And all of a sudden, like that, this revolutionary idea that what the heart chooses, the will works for, and the mind justifies, becomes so much more than just an interesting intellectual exercise. It changes everything. And to see how, I want to tell you a couple more stories, too, specifically from the life of the Apostle Peter. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. This is from Matthew, beginning in the 16th chapter and 13th verse. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Now Peter's bipolar responses here, first correctly identifying Jesus as the Messiah, Son of the living God, and then immediately refusing to accept that Jesus needed to do what the Messiah had come to do, are a picture of a human person whose mind and will are totally bound to the desires of of his heart. See, Peter's confusion about exactly who Jesus was and what he came to do reminds me of something that happened to me many years ago. I was an intern at a church, and one of my duties was to lead a praise band for a contemporary worship service that we were doing. Uh, the associate rector of that church was a blessed man named Norm Reeby. I only mention his name because he's the hero of this story. Father Reeby was very old. Or at least I thought of him as old at the time. Now that, now that I'm an associate rector, I'm a little worried about how old I probably seem to those meddling kids at my church. Um, anyway, at that time, I was unable to see him as a blessed man. I just saw him as sort of a crotchety old guy. This was, of course, before I came an old and crotchety associate rector myself. Father Reby always seemed to me to be the kind of guy who'd yell, get off my lawn at the neighborhood kids. Now I yell that kind of thing at my own kids. Nate Lee, it's coming for you. A crotchety associate rector syndrome gets us all. Uh, One day, Father Reeby heard our praise band practicing in the church. We were playing a song called, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High. Perhaps you've heard this song. Uh, It goes like this. Lord, I lift your name on high lord i love to sing your praises i'm so glad you're in my life i'm so glad you came to save us and then the chorus you came from heaven to earth to show the way from the cross to the grave my debt to pay from the cross to the grave from the grave to the sky lord i lift your name on high You don't know what a risk that was that I just took? That's a nice song, right? (laughs) It's a little 80s, but nice. Well, not nice for Norm Rebe. He came storming up the aisle of the church toward me, right up into my face, and told me that he hated that song. Why? Well, according to Father Reby, the message is all wrong. You see, he said, Jesus didn't come to show the way. Jesus came to be the way. And not knowing any better, I dismissed that blessed man's critique as just more get-off-my-lawn griping. The ravings of a way-past-his-prime madman, a chronic sufferer of crotchety-associate-rector syndrome. But he was exactly right. And the confusion propagated by, Lord, I lift your name on high, is the same confusion evidenced by Peter in that passage from Matthew. Peter, it seems to me, is like most of us would have been, totally captive to the desires of his heart. He wanted Jesus to stay and show him the way. And to properly do that, Jesus couldn't die. He needed to stay around to be a good example Peter didn't understand that Jesus didn't come to show the way, he came to be the way, and to do that, he absolutely did have to die. You see, we're not saved by Jesus' good example. We are saved by Jesus' death and resurrection. And when Peter says, this must never happen to you, Jesus could not be more clear. Get behind me, Satan. Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. In other words, you are setting your mind on my showing the way, because you want this to be about what you can do, and not on my being the way, the good news about what I will do for you. Human things are what you can do for God, divine things. Are what God has done for you. And this is the connection between Cranmer's prayer and Peter's confusion, a confusion that we all share. If our minds could choose, and our wills could be applied, and our hearts could catch up, it would be enough that Jesus came to show the way. Because we would just need direction not a savior. But our minds can't choose. Our wills can't be applied. Our bound and broken hearts lead us around like slaves, and so we need so much more than a good example we can choose to follow. We need a savior. We don't need a Jesus who came to show the way. We need a Jesus who came to be the way. Another example of this confusion can be seen in Matthew chapter 14 when Peter briefly walks on the water toward Jesus. Remember what he says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. The chutzpah of this guy, right? The faith of Peter is rightly lauded here. He's got the guts to step out of the boat onto the water and start walking. Peter is a fisherman. He's got lots of water experience. He knows what happens to people who are in the water, but not in a boat. They sink. But just for a moment, Peter doesn't. Peter is walking on the water. But then what happens? Matthew says that he notices the strong wind and becomes frightened and begins to sink. That then, we're so often told, is Peter's critical mistake. He was faithful enough to begin his walk on the water, but not faithful enough to finish it. He took his eyes off of Jesus. Don't make that mistake. And listen, that's fine. That's pretty good advice, right? Leave your eyes on Jesus. We should stay focused on Jesus. We shouldn't let our fears convince us that God doesn't have sufficient power or that he doesn't care. But all this Shoulding and shouldnting, though completely accurate, sounds a lot like Jesus showing the way instead of being the way, doesn't it? And there's another problem with the admonition to stay focused on Jesus. It assumes that we're not already sinking. But we are. We are gathered here together tonight, drowning. Drowning. And Thomas Cranmer knew it. If I stand up here and encourage you to have the faith of Peter, to believe in the power of Christ so strongly that you're willing to get out of the boat and walk on the water, but then I admonish you not to make the mistake that Peter did. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. I'm assuming that you're either still in the boat or still successfully walking on the water. Get out of that boat. Have a powerful faith, I might be saying. Or, you can do it. Keep walking on that water. Finish the way you started. Keep your eyes fixed straight ahead on Jesus. But you see the presupposition, don't you? I'm assuming that you have an ability that Cranmer, as he composed his powerful prayer, knew that you didn't have. I'm assuming that you have the ability to look at a problem and use your mind and your will to address it, that your heart will catch up later. The problem is that if you're anything like me or my friends or the people sitting to the right or left of you in the pews or anybody I know in the world, exhortation and admonition come too late. The problem is your broken and twisted heart. You didn't come to a conference on grace in 2017 to hear me give you good advice, or to encourage you to step out in faith, or to admonish you to do better. You came here, or to any church in 2017 for that matter, because you needed to. You needed it because your marriage fell apart, or because the most terrible secret in your life just became public knowledge. You're here because you can feel that there's a terrible disconnect between the way things are and the way things ought to be. You're here because a child has stopped talking to you or because a parent has failed you completely. You're here this evening because, like me, you're drowning. Well, I have good news For drowning people. Good news for unwilling hearts. The good news is this. Christianity is not ultimately about good advice, exhortation, or admonition. All these things have their place, and used in their place are a great benefit. But in the final analysis, they are just Jesus showing the way. They are not good news for drowning people. This is Matthew 14, verses 30 and 31. But when Peter noticed the strong wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him. Jesus doesn't wait. He doesn't say to himself, let's see how Peter reacts to this situation. Let's see if Peter can make a good decision and apply his will to the problem. Matthew says that Jesus' reaction is immediate. This story of Peter drowning is not about staying focused on Jesus, although that's a good thing. This story is about knowing that Jesus is focused on you. Jesus is not Peter's swim coach, who's not going to do it for him, not going to take it easy, and really wants him to figure it out for himself. In fact, Jesus would be a terrible coach, because instead of asking for an accomplishment from you, and then encouraging you to do your best, Jesus gives you his own accomplishments for free. He does step in and do it for you. See, at first, he's much worse than a coach. He doesn't just want effort and hustle. He asks not for hard work, but for perfect obedience. Love your enemies. Give all you have to the poor. Be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. But then after being worse, he becomes so much better. Asking for perfection, he gives us his perfection as a gift. He takes all your failure onto his shoulders and gives you all his goodness in exchange. Christianity is not about a Jesus who stands there encouraging us to swim more efficiently, a Jesus who came to show the way. Christianity is about a Jesus who rescues the drowning. And Cranmer's prayer which beseeches God to bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners, and asks him to grant his people grace to love what he commands and desires what he promises in the midst of the swift and varied changes of the world, reveals the truth of our situation. We're not in the boat considering a rational decision and the application of our wills. We are already drowning, overcome by our unwilling and unruly hearts. Let's press pause here for just a second. I've told two stories, Peter misunderstanding what Jesus came to do in one and failing to successfully walk on water in the other. And both times, I told you that those stories were not about Jesus as example or as encourager or as coach. And listen, I can hear your objection. Jesus is a coach too, right? Jesus also came to show the way, didn't he? Isn't he also a good example? And yes, let's be clear. Jesus did show the way. He did tell his followers all kinds of things that they could do. But these things, like turning the other cheek and giving away all you have to the poor and loving your enemies, these things were intended to show his followers... That Jesus showing the way wasn't by itself enough. Our consistent failure to follow the path that Jesus showed meant that Jesus would have to walk the path himself. Showing the way wasn't ultimately why he came. Jesus would have to be the way, which of course was the plan all along. Remember, Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus would have to do everything. And so, yes, Jesus did come to show the way, but that's not the end of the story. It never is. In fact, if that was the end of the story, the story always ends in tears. Because people who see Jesus primarily as a coach, as an encourager, who think Jesus came merely or even principally to show the way they give it a shot for a while get burned out and leave forever and they run so far away that they don't even remember his name but people who know jesus as the savior who rescues the drowning a jesus who came to be the way they fall in love with him forever So, my brothers and sisters, when you feel that you're drowning, don't delude yourself. Don't think, what can I do to stay on top of the water? Or, what does my coach want from me? Or, how can I make good decisions and apply my will to this problem? Do what Peter did. Cry, Lord, save me. Let me finish with one last story. A few weeks ago at St. Francis in Louisville, just as we were starting to process into the church for a service, we found a bracelet that someone had dropped on the ground. It was a what would Jesus do bracelet, but this one, unlike many of the several thousand WWJD bracelets that I'd seen before, had a cross attached. Now, Traditionally, These bracelets are supposed to make you think, as you consider a situation that presents itself to you, as you come to a fork in the road, what Jesus would do in that same situation so that you can copy him. This bracelet, the one that we found with the cross attached, whether it intended to or not, by the addition of that cross, put a different spin on the question. If this bracelet asked what would Jesus do, it also supplied the answer. He would die on the cross for you. In other words, traditional what would Jesus do bracelets are about Jesus showing the way. Get behind me, Satan. At a cross and you've got good news. You've got Jesus being the way. Remember Jesus calling Peter the rock when he correctly identified Jesus as the Messiah? Well, in light of these two stories that we've just heard, we have to revisit this idea. In fact, now we must understand that Jesus is not actually calling Peter the rock at all. You see, Peter is not the rock upon which the church will be founded. Peter's confession is... And Peter's confession, the cornerstone of Jesus' religion, has nothing to do with Jesus as example. Who do we say that you are, Jesus? You are the Messiah, the Christ, Son of the living God. You have come to redeem sinners, raise the dead to new life, and save the world. It is upon this rock that the church is built. Thomas Cranmer's prayer for the fifth Sunday in Lent crystallized the reformational rediscovery of both the human problem and God's solution to it. It is God's two great announcements to us in a seismic little package. First, the bad news. Your heart is deceitful, and on your own you are ruined. You, like Peter, would stand in the way of Jesus' saving work, preferring that he show you the way to save yourself. But the bad news is just the first word. The final word is the gospel, the good news for unwilling hearts, and so full of grace that we're still saying it 500 years later. You are not on your own. You never will be. Your ruination has led to resurrection. You are in desperate need of a Savior, yes. But in Christ, that Savior has come. This Savior, Jesus Christ, is a Savior who comes to us while we are doing the things we don't want to do. A Savior who comes to us while we aren't doing the things we're supposed to do. A Savior who comes while we are sinners. A Savior who looks past our shiny exteriors and into our broken hearts. A Savior who knows how bound we are to those sinful hearts. A Savior who comes to us while we occupy, in St. Paul's words, this body of death. We have the one Savior. The one and only Son of Almighty God, who by his sacrifice brought to fruition God's promise from Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. Who will rescue us from this body of death? Thanks be to God, says Paul in the very next sentence, who saves through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So as we close, let us pray one more time. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.